walking along a path on our way to a park and I just found a bird's nest. It's so crazy how birds construct these things and a lot of animals in the animal kingdom create some really funky nests. I think this calls for an episode of Little Curiosities, so let's talk about it, shall we? Hello, all you curiosity cadets. Welcome to Little Curiosities with Kendall Long, the podcast where I take a spark of curiosity and turn it into a whole episode. And along the way, I hope to provide some answers to life's little mysteries. So some of you may know me from the Bachelor series where I was on a quest for love. But on this podcast, as always, I'm on a whole different kind of quest, the quest for knowledge. And you know what? Sometimes I'm just so gosh darn impressed with the odd happenings of our natural world. And this episode is really up there with impressiveness because while I was researching for it, I found myself thinking, is this real life? Can animals be so oddly wonderful? Can they actually construct things like this? Because this episode, of course, as you can tell from the spark in the beginning, is all about nests. And yes, we do, of course, talk about birds' nests, including ones you can eat. Yes, they are eatable. But I also cover some nests that are not constructed by our feathery friends. Also, nests made with pea bubbles and ones with the designs so intricate, it looks like they could have been made by aliens. But I won't get too ahead of myself. Let's start with all that you had to say about nests. I, of course, took to Instagram and asked all of you on my story if you had any facts about nests, if you had any questions about the nesting world, about certain species that did nesting. Is that what it is? Did nesting? I don't know. But a lot of you, I noticed, mentioned hummingbird nests. Dan underscore I-E-L-L-E-3 said, hummingbird nests, they're so tiny and cute. So many of you were interested in hummingbirds' nests that I wanted to give a few facts because I don't really talk about them later in this episode. So something I found interesting about hummingbirds' nests is that they are built in a way that the sides are kind of elastic. So they stretch and grow as the chicks do. And the reason why these nests do this is because they're woven with twigs, bits of leaves, and other plants, and they use spider silk. Little hummingbirds use spider silk to weave them together so it has like that elastic ability and it can uh, grow as their little ones grow. So that's really neat, a really cool engineering feat by the humble hummingbird. Something also that I found super nostalgic while I was researching about hummingbird nests is that they use soft plants, especially one called lamb's ear. This plant is one that my mom would plant in our garden all of the time. And I remember when I was younger, I would actually use the leaves, which are super soft, basically as soft as a baby's blanket. I would use them as fairy blankets or blankets for my dolls because they were so soft. And that's probably why we had a lot of hummingbirds' nests in my backyard growing up. I remember my mom would show one specifically that was outside of our small tree, outside of our window, and we would just look at the progress of the eggs like every day to see if they've hatched, to see the little babies and the mom come and visit. It was such a magical time, so thank you for that. Researching that was such a little nostalgic road to go down. I got another question from Bag Herms. <laughs> Bag herms? I think that's how it's pronounced. And they asked, do birds start nesting after they are paired up and eggs fertilized or solo? And the answer I have for that is both. Males will build a nest to attract a female. 
Like, hey, I built this really cool house. Don't you want to come here and have babies with me and raise young in it? And then some bird species will actually build a nest together. So both mom and dad will have an input on how the nest is laid out. And it really just depends on the species. And I'll talk about both species of birds later on in the episode. So stay tuned for that. Anigo underscore pro said, will birds, in particular cardinals, use the same nest or do they build a new one every year? And the answer to this is also yes and no, depending on the bird species. So when it comes to specifically cardinals, they build a new nest every year and sometimes even twice a year, while other bird species may pass down a nest for generations. I'm talking decades of passing down this specific nest. And I talk more about each bird species that does that later in the episode as well. So really exciting episode. There's a lot to talk about with birds' nests. And I'm going to end with this last comment. And they asked, most unusual nest you wouldn't expect. And all I have to say is while I was recording this episode, there were quite a few of those moments where I was like, wow, I didn't even know that animals were capable of creating things like this. And the one that really stands out the most to me is one that I kind of mentioned earlier, and it's built by the pufferfish. It stood out the most to me because I'm still not convinced that their nests are not, in fact, made by aliens. And you'll see why. I'll talk about it later on. So thank you for those of you that chimed in on the conversation like a little bird duet. Thank you so much. I really do love being inspired by your questions and little tidbits of knowledge, and it really helps bring these episodes so much more fullness and gives me ideas on topics that I would never think of on my own. So thank you so much. If any of you want to be a part of this podcast, and have some input on upcoming episodes, I do post a little bit of like a sneak preview on what a future episode is going to be about, often in my stories. So if you want to chime in on the conversation and give me a question or give me like a little piece of knowledge that I can use in a future episode, I love that. I love when everyone is a part of these episodes. Before I get into this episode, all that is nests, if you wouldn't mind sending us some love and subscribing to Little Curiosities, that would mean so much. And also, while you're at it, make sure to rate and review as well. We here at Little Curiosities are like young little birds just leaving the nest, flapping our wings for the first time. And really, all of your support means so much to our new podcast, and it helps us out so much you have no idea. So if you can please give us a little love, I would very much appreciate that. And all of my team at Q Code that works really hard to put these episodes together would also love you forever. So thank you. Okay, so first things first. Birds are the ultimate building nest pros. I feel like I don't even have to say that. So of course, I've dedicated a good chunk of this episode to our winged fellows of the animal kingdom. And what better bird to start with than the bird that represents my home country, the United States of America, and it's on our money, okay? It's on the dollar bill. And if you guys haven't figured it out by now, I am of course talking about the bald eagle. So a little side note, did you know that the bald eagle is the most pictured bird in all of America because it's on our money, it's on a lot of flags, plus taking pictures of the bird itself is also very popular. I've seen some really stunning pictures of bald eagles on some of the social media accounts that I follow. And uh, yeah, it's quite a model, the bald eagle. I would say it's a very handsome bird. But besides being incredibly photogenic, do you know what else bald eagles are good at? Yes, they're very good at nest building. In fact, they're so good that bald eagles have the largest nest of any bird. 
So usually they're around four to five feet wide and two to four feet deep. So I feel like I can definitely comfortably sit inside of a bald eagle's nest, one of those giant beanbag chairs. I'm not sure if it's going to be as cushy. It might be a little pokey with all of the sticks, but I can definitely sit comfortably inside there. Something that's even crazier is that when bald eagle nests are fully built, they can weigh more than a thousand pounds. So just to put that into perspective, that's around as heavy as an average cow, which is around 1,200 pounds. I don't know why I chose to use cow measurements, but in my personal opinion, it's the best form of measurement because we've all seen a cow, right? One of the largest bird nests in the world belongs to a pair of bald eagles, not surprisingly, because I said they had the biggest nest. But this specific nest was found in St. Petersburg, Florida, and measured 9.5 feet wide, 20 feet deep. That's 2.9 meters wide, 6 meters deep for those who go by the metric system. And it weighed so many cows. It weighed 6,000 pounds. That's around three tons. And for those of you that are curious, because I know you are, that's around four to six cows. <laughs> so that's a lot of cows. The tree must have been pretty strong. This giant three-ton pile of sticks was examined in 1963 and found by experts to, in fact, be genuine and bird-created. It's legit. It wasn't some human trying to pull a prank. This nest is out there, and I feel like I want to move in there because it's just so big. It's probably bigger than most apartments you're going to find in New York or Los Angeles, and probably be a lot cheaper as well. There you go. Bald eagles are also pretty picky about their nesting spots because I'm sure you know by now they have a tendency to build their nests on the larger side. Not your average branch will do because it could fall and break and crack. They don't want that because they're raising the little babies in there. And this is why bald eagles prefer mature trees like white pine and cottonwood. Big, old, strong, sturdy trees. So uh, less likely to have any sort of branch breakage, which I'm sure is the parent's goal. They are also known to nest way up high on rock crevices, and it uh, turns out they like the skyscraper views because bald eagles prefer their nests to be between 50 to 125 feet up in the air. And all I gotta say is, who doesn't like a home with a view? If I had wings and I could build my home anywhere, I would definitely want to build my little nest like way up high so I can see the view of the mountains. So good for them. They know all about location, location, location. But it's not all about location. It also is about construction. And when it comes to the construction of this large task, both male and female build the nest together. So this is a species of bird that they go in on it 50-50. And they have equal investment because bald eagles mate for life. So they are indeed in it for the long haul. Unlike other birds, they may use the same nest each year. And this decision to stay in a nest or to build a new one depends heavily on the success of their offspring. So if their chicks happen to not make it that season, oftentimes bald eagles will abandon that nest. They're like, this nest is bad luck. We're going to make a whole new one and hopefully our babies will survive this year. If a nest is successful, then they will keep it. And when it comes time for a new group of baby chickies, it is given a renovation. So of course, the soon-to-be parents make sure the nest is nice and tidy, picking out all debris that maybe have gathered up during the not-so-matey season. And they also upgrade the size of the nest. So often they add around one to two feet of material to the structure each year. So each year, this nest is getting bigger and bigger. 
The oldest nest on record was found in Vermilion, Ohio, and it was used by eagles continually for 34 years. I'm not too sure if this nest was used by the same pair of bald eagles because their lifespan is around 20 to 30 years. I think more so multiple pairs of eagles moved in and out of the nest throughout that time. But uh, hey, nest building is hard. And if a perfectly good one is already there, why not move in? Say a pair of bald eagles does decide to start from scratch. They can't find any other cool nests left behind by other eagles or, you know, this is their first mating season. They will start building a new nest from scratch around two to three months before mating. So they think ahead. Another thing about bald eagles' nests is that they like to keep it green. And they do this by adding freshly picked sprigs and they add it to their nest. So it isn't really entirely known why they do this, but a common theory is that this greenery acts as a sort of insect repellent to keep away those creepy crawlies from their nests and their babies. And this makes sense because a lot of plants will produce chemicals that repel certain insects. So for instance, basil, rosemary, lavender, all of these plants have strong smells that attract certain insects but keep other pesky insects away. So I feel like maybe bald eagles have caught on to this trend. There are a few other theories as to why they think bald eagles put fresh greenery inside of their nests. Another one is maybe they're trying to show that the nest is occupado. If a nest is all yellow and old, it's a sign that something hasn't been there for a long time. But if there are freshly picked leaves there or branches, I feel like other eagles are probably like, oh, someone was here and they're trying to decorate the place, so we should stay clear. Another theory is that it serves as camouflage because if you're a parent, you don't want your babies to be obvious to predators, especially predators that would love to eat eggs for breakfast in the morning. Or maybe another theory, like how we bring fresh flowers from the garden into our home, they just like it. They just like fresh greenery. I think there's something in humans as well that I always feel happier when I have like fresh flowers or fresh plants around me, like in my home. For some reason, it just makes me happy. So I, I don't blame bald eagles for doing that just because it heightens their spirits. It makes them happy. So let me know which one you think is the most believable theory. I'm going to go with the fact that they probably want to repel insects. I think that one is the theory that maybe makes the most sense to me. But let me know what you think. I'm curious. So the eagles have their location. Maybe it's on the cliff or really high, strong tree. And they built this huge structure and they put little fresh sprigs everywhere in the nest. And as a finishing touch, the nest is also lined with any soft things they can find like moss, grass, and even human fibers. And this soft cushion not only keeps the eggs nice and cozy, but it also prevents them from rolling out. Because remember, they like to be super high up in trees or on cliffs. So it's good crib padding, like a little bumper just in case babies want to crawl out or, I don't know, flap out. For now, we're going to move on from bald eagles' nests and go on to another one that is much more edible and will not disappoint on the culinary front because... It is often eaten not by other animals, but by peoples. It is eaten by us. And if you're thinking, what? An edible nest? That sounds bonkers. If you were to make a home and construct it out of anything, why not make it out of yummy things? Like, think Hansel and Gretel. But unlike the grim fairy tale, this nest is not going to be constructed by a child-hungry evil witch. It is instead created by a very small brown bird called the Swiftlet. Not the Swifty. I know there's a lot of Taylor Swift 
love going on out there because of all her concerts. I literally see everybody on my Instagram going to a Taylor Swift concert. I did happen to go to a Taylor Swift concert like way back when. I'm not going to tell you how far back. And she is a great performer. So I do not blame anyone for paying like, what is it, thousands of dollars to see her show. And I'm going to admit to you that for this episode, I did take a bit of a dive into Taylor Swift's songs because she's written so many songs. So I was like, there has to be one about a bird. And something was so interesting because she has written a song that involved a bird. And I swear she's talking about a swiftlet. So in her song, it's a song called Bigger Than the Whole Sky. One lyric says, did some bird flap its wings over Asia? And swiftlets are found in Southeastern Asia. Coincidence? I think not. I think Taylor is talking about a swiftlet. All you Taylor fans are probably like, duh, we already knew that. (laughs) But for me, I've kind of nerded out about that because I was like, oh my gosh, Taylor Swift, there's a bird that's named after you and you happen to talk about it in your song. Anyway, I was actually really pleased that lined up. Whether Taylor was in fact referring to a swiftlet may be a mystery. We'll have to see. But as I mentioned earlier, the swiftlet is a very small bird. They're only about 12 centimeters long and weigh around 18 grams. So they're tiny little things. I can't accurately do the math for cow measurement on this one, but maybe it's like the equivalent to a cow ear. Does that sound about right? (laughs) Because they're so teeny tiny, swiftlets often get munched on by a number of different predators. I mean, you name it, bats, cats, and yes, even rats. Because they are so vulnerable with their size, swiftlets construct their nests high up on the walls of limestone caves. Oh yeah, these birds live in caves. Did I not mention that earlier? And it seems like such an odd place for a bird to live, but honestly, I can't think of a safer place to be than deep inside of a limestone cave, away from most hungry predators who don't really know how to live in those conditions. And swiftlets do because they've adapted a number of amazing things that allow them to live in an environment like this, such as the ability to echolocate. Yeah, they've learned how to echolocate just like a bat, and they do this in the form of little clicks, and that's how they navigate in those deep, dark caves. Pretty fascinating. Being oh so far away from the outside world, these caves provide very little when it comes to nest building materials. So when a swiftlet needs to build a nest, these little birds must improvise, right? What are they going to use? And to do this, they improvise by using their spit. And if you're thinking, a nest made entirely of spit, that will never work. And I can understand because for us humans, yes, our spit, a building material, does not make. But a swiftlet spit is perfect for sticking to the slippery cave walls. Unlike our spit, it dries rock hard when in contact with the air. Now, this isn't a swift task either. Yes, I did that on purpose. (laughs) It can take a pair of birds roughly two months before their nest is completed. And swiftlets only create about three of these nests every year. So they don't make a lot of them. Now, you may remember that I said these nests were edible, so I'm going to get back to that. And yes, the mom bird and her babies do eat the nests on occasion to have as like a little snack when times are scarce. But us humans in certain cultures also eat these nests. That means that uh, nests made of spit are on the menu. And given that there is a lot of work and time involved with making these nests, and also the fact that their location isn't ideal, really high up on slippery cave walls, 
they can be a pretty pricey meal. So swiftlet nests are actually considered a delicacy in Chinese cuisine, and as such, they have been eaten for thousands of years. So it's really traditional to eat these nests. And being that it's made of tiny bird spittle, I did a little research on the health benefits of these nests, and there were claims that eating the nest could reduce fatigue, improve the health of the skin, increase immunity, and also increase the number of red blood cells. Some even claim it helps children grow up strong and can cure cancer. And that's a pretty impressive resume. Though I'm not entirely sure if this is all true, a swiftlet nest is about 40 to 50% protein, so there's that. Regardless of what the real truth is, it looks like the spit really is worth its weight in gold. I'll talk more on price later, and you will be shocked. <laughs> Trust me. One of these nests dried up looks like a thin white rice chip, or maybe more like a bunch of stringy rice noodles before they're cooked. But just like rice chips, you do not want to go chomping down on one of these babies raw. The most popular way to eat swiftlet nests is in soup. So this soup looks like a gelatinous mixture of threads, which I'll bet makes for a very interesting texture. And if you're a curious cookie like me, and you want to try this soup for yourself, you won't have to travel all the way to Asia to get your hands on some. In fact, you can easily find this menu item in your local Chinatown or an authentic Chinese restaurant. So if you're curious to give it a taste, keep an eye out. For those that have tried bird nest soup, they say it doesn't taste like much of anything, but there is a jelly-like texture in a soup that comes from the bird nests. But even though it lacks in flavor, do not expect this soup to be cheap. On average, a bowl usually sells for around $35 to $100. I myself did dabble in trying to get some for myself, and I was looking online to see if I can just order some to make some at home, and I found a box that was titled Golden Nest Premium White Bird's Nest AAA. Not sure if that means it's a really good quality one, but it probably was because the price tag for about a dozen of these nests was over $1,000. And I'm curious, but I'm really not that curious. Okay, I can't be spending $1,000 on a bowl of soup. I'm sorry. I'd like to think I'm balling like that, but I'm not. But look, if I do see a reasonably priced bowl in Germany, I'll let you know. And understandably, because of these hefty price tags, these nests have been dubbed the caviar of the East. And this may seem like a steep price, but do you know what's even steeper? The cave walls where they're harvested. So to attain these pricey nests, harvesters would climb up rickety ladders without any safety equipment. That means no safety nets, no harnesses, and they would then have to detach these nests, literally superglued by saliva, to the cave walls from a towering few stories up. So yeah, I'd say the price tag is probably very justified. But as it turns out, that's only partially why they are so expensive— as you could probably imagine, because these nests were so valuable, harvesters would often take them without the birds being in mind, unfortunately, pulling them from the cave walls willy-nilly, some even only halfway complete, baby on board or not. Syphilits couldn't compete, which meant their populations plummeted a great deal, populations dwindling down to as much as 88% in some parts of Southeast Asia, hiking prices up even more, which is bad news for our little Swifties. 
But you will be happy to know that currently it does look like a solution to this problem is at hand with the growing popularity of something called Swiftlet Hotels. So these are basically abandoned buildings or upper stories of buildings where some Swiftlets just happen to take up residence. So instead of individuals sourcing these nests from dark, deep caves with dangerous conditions, they have instead shifted to farming in a way these more easily accessible buildings that the Swiftlets have started using as their nesting sites. And now people are trying to get Swiftlets to go to these buildings on purpose. They'll leave the top story of their homes unoccupied so the Swiftlets can go in, and some people will even rent entire buildings just for Swiftlets. A town in Myanmar is said to rake in millions on Swiftlet bird nests alone in this exact way. There, they gather the nests three to four times a year and only when the hatchlings have matured and flown away. So no bird babies were harmed in the process of making their bird nest soup, which is good news. It sounds like a win to me. Something I found really interesting is that to attract the birds to their Swiftlet hotels, Swiftlet nest farmers will set up speakers broadcasting bird noises 24-7. And as you'd imagine, some neighbors do not seem too pleased with the around-the-clock orchestra, and it's easy to see how the boom in Swiftlet nest farming has definitely added to the noise pollution in some areas. And to be real, I would not be too pleased with the nonstop music. It's literally the equivalent of like a bird frat party going on nonstop in the neighborhood through all hours of the night. I would hate it. So I don't blame the residents for not liking this new trend of having Swiftlet hotels. But it does bring in a lot of money for the community. So in that way, I feel like it's definitely a positive because Swiftlet nests are always going to be desirable. It's a very popular and very lucrative menu item. So I do like that it helps the community, but can we just sound off at a certain time of night? I think even the Swiftlets probably want to sleep at some point. But unfortunately for the residents living near these birdie abodes, it really does look like this is a growing trend. The estimated number of Swiftlet hotels has grown from 900 to a staggering 60,000 in Malaysia alone. So there's probably going to be a lot of sleepless nights for a lot of people in those communities, unfortunately. You really have to invest in some good earplugs. Those go a long way. And also, people aren't just making money off of these nests. They're also making money off of things that go along with housing all of these Swiftlets. So, for instance, I saw this site that sold Swiftlet Love Potion because they want their birds to keep on making babies. Like, the more babies, the merrier. Basically, it was this big romantic concoction sold by the gallon in these huge jugs. And their promise was to be more powerful than before. I'm not sure what their other first batch was like or their previous products were like, but this is more powerful. And it also boasts that it has the odor that makes birds get into the mating mood. So it's kind of like the cologne for Swiftlets. All I know is it's like a bluish green, kind of like Gatorade. So be careful. Don't put it in the fridge next to your Gatorade or else you'll walk outside and birds will just start following you and you have no idea why. So with business booming and a steady demand for birdie spittle nests, for now, it looks like Myanmar has gone to the birds. Building a nest completely out of one's own saliva does seem impressive, but this next nest may give it a run for its birdie nest suit money. Enter the weaver birds. Weaver birds, 
weave nests, hence the name. I'm sure you could have guessed that. Weaver birds, in my opinion, have some of the most impressively constructed nests. They consist of very sophisticated hanging ball-like structures, and they're made of woven pieces of grass, leaves, and twigs, kind of like little hanging baskets. There are over a hundred different species of weaver birds, and the nests do vary a bit within each group, but they're all pretty dang impressive, and they're impressive enough to resemble those trendy tree houses you'd expect to see in the jungles of Tulum. Like, literally. They're pretty dang cool. The constructors of these impressive basket-like nests are small passerine birds. There's a lot of birds, pigs, and they're and related not a lot of everything else, because Weaver the birds pigs are eating it all up. and bright yellow in color. And boy, oh boy, can these little feather puffs Produced weave. by Ryan Counts House to start and one of these impressive artworks, the bird begins by Produced tying by a Ryan long Counts blade of grass and Alexa into Gabrielle a knot. How can a bird tie Produced a by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. My mind is blown by this because there isn't Produced even any Alexa evidence Gabrielle of chimpanzees Ramirez. or other non-human ape species and just being able I'm to accomplish such a remarkable feat. Gabriella, it really is a remarkable feat. And even more surprisingly, weaver birds Produced can do by this Ryan without the help of their Alexa Gabriella Ramirez, aka fingers. For the Produced weaver by bird, Alexa Gabriella no Ramirez, are necessary for this task because the bird ties these knots using its feet. In fact, weaver birds are the only birds recorded with the ability to tie knots. They're quite talented with only a beak and their talons. And after the knot is tied on their desired branch location, a circular structure using woven leaves, grass, roots, twigs is constructed from the knot. So the knot is the base, and they construct like this ball-shaped nest that hangs off the tree from this initial knot. Weaver birds also have conical beaks, which means they have a wide base with a sharp point, and this makes them strong enough to crush seeds, like a nutcracker. And they also use these buff beaks to cut and gather materials for their nests. And they make swift work of it, too, completing a nest in usually just two days. These nests aren't messing around. They're pretty legit. And they're said to be able to survive violent storms and are 100% waterproof. All of the nest building duties are done exclusively by the males, all of whom are hoping and crossing their little talon fingers to gain the affections of a ladybird. And these are picky females, and they prefer fresh nests. They don't want one of those oldy, crusty nests that are starting to turn yellow. So after all of his hard work, if a male weaver's nest fails to get chosen by a female by the time it turns from green to yellow, he will more often than not have to cut it down and build another fresh nest, one from scratch. And then hope he gets selected the second time around, or maybe the third time around. I don't know how many times they can cut down and build a new nest. I feel like they have really strong spirits. This really sounds like a lot of work for one little weaver to do alone. Wouldn't it be nice if he had help? <laughs> Which brings me to the sociable weaver. I love these birds. Sociable weavers are one of my favorite birds, and they're just like their name suggests, social. So when they build a home, it isn't just one nest. It's more like a giant bird apartment complex. Sociable weaver colonies can be as small as 10 birds or as big as 500 individuals. So they're very social indeed. Their grouped-together nests look kind of like a haystack got stuck in a tree from a strong storm. And unlike other weaver birds, these nests are made a bit more simple. They're not really those woven tulum baskets. Social weaver birds instead construct their nests by just shoving straws, one by one, into a giant bale. <laughs> I don't really know if there's any rhyme or reason. I'm sure there is. 
These colonies have to last a long time because they're not just used for mating season. Sociable weavers are known to stay in them throughout the entire year. And they also pass them down from generation to generation. So just think, if you ever get the chance to look at a sociable weaver colony, you're seeing generations of a family all together in the same home. I think it's so cute, which is why I love the sociable weaver so much. And some even have lasted for centuries. So these are sturdy buggers. They may not be woven beauties, but they really get the job done. And these massive nests can weigh up to a ton. Remember, that's about the size of two cows. If one was looking up at the nest from the ground, you would see a bunch of holes dotting through the hay-like grass, serving as entrances for each birdie's apartment unit. Now, these nests aren't just for the weavers in the colony. Their communal abode provides shelter for a wide variety of other birds and also non-birds, like paper wasps, who build their nests just below these big hay bale nests, and mongoose and baboons who use the nest to forage for tasty treats because you can imagine there's a bunch of little critters like crawling around in there. Leopards and cheetahs have also been known to occupy them as resting spots. So their homes are pretty popular with the neighbors. I can imagine it's the house that everyone goes to for a barbecue. These nests are built in the hot deserts of South Africa, Namibia, and Botswana, where it's incredibly hot during the day. And with these blazing temperatures, the thick thatch roof keeps the nests cool, and at night, when the temperatures can drop to a few degrees below zero, the large clumped-together nest keeps the cubbies insulated. So with these extreme climates, enclosed nests provide optimal temperatures that prevent the birds' homes from reaching deadly conditions and ensure that their eggs won't turn sunny-side up. This temperature regulation also means that the parents can spend less time incubating eggs and more time searching for food. Not only that, but community living also has other benefits as well, like offering protection from potential enemies. That means more eyes on the lookout and less likely to be singled out. So despite the safety in numbers, however, weaver birds' nests are a huge big target for hungry predators and often raided by snakes. About 80% of the weaver bird's offspring will not make it to adulthood because of this. So the birds do what they can and rely on their comrades to send chirping alarm bells whenever they sense a slithering presence. This close communication, where they can exchange information easily, is also beneficial when it comes to finding food. If one weaver locates a good supply of grub, the others will follow. But enough about birds' nests, though there are many impressive ones, and on to nests constructed by non-feathery comrades. And I'll admit, some of my favorite species to research because they're just so gosh dang diverse and interesting, insects. So first, let's talk about wasp nests. I, I couldn't go through this episode without talking about the wonderful nest that is made by wasps. So for those of you that see wasp nests as the forbidden danger pinata, think again. The wasp nest alone has served as an inspiration for an invention responsible for advancing knowledge and making reading accessible around the world. And dare I say, it's the best discovery for our human species since fire. I'm of course talking about paper. But before I go into how wasps taught us how to make paper, here are a few fun wasp nest facts. Number one, 
wasps create their own air conditioning. If a wasp nest gets too toasty, a few wasps will sit at the entrance and fan their wings, causing air to circulate around the nest, cooling it. Another wasp nest fact. Wasps are not a big fan of ants. Ants have been known to sneak into wasp homes and snag their precious larvae the audacity. So in order to keep those pesky walking sprinkles at bay, wasps secrete a chemical at the base of their nests. Some of these wasp-producing chemicals have been observed to bring ants into a crazy frenzy, provoking them to attack one another, leaving the wasps alone. Another wasp nest fact. Wasp nests are built from the inside out. It's like a tongue twister to say wasp nests. Say that like five times fast. Wasp nest, wasp nest. I can't. Wasp nests are built from the inside out. They start with an umbrella-shaped honeycomb structure and then build layer upon layer of papery pulp to protect it. These layers somewhat resemble the rings of a tree trunk. And speaking of papery pulp, back to the invention of paper. This wasp-made nesting material is exactly what inspired an official at the court of the Han Dynasty to invent paper— At the time, Chai Lun, as he was called, was studying wasps and bees and was struck with inspiration. After noticing that wasps made their nests by chewing fibers of raw materials like plants and cloth into a pulp. Today, wasps will sometimes acquire raw materials like dead wood from scraping things like benches, the side of your house, or wood piles. And yes, just like the swiftlet nests we talked about earlier, wasps also owe their nest construction partially to their spit. The wasps chew this dead wood pulp and combine it with their sticky glue-like saliva. This mastication mixed with their spit forms the papery-like product that they use to construct their nests. Protein in the wasp's saliva makes their nests strong and durable and resistant to water. It is this pulp-creating process that led to the development of paper. Before paper was invented, people used all kinds of things like leathered skin, pressed or dried bark, or plants to create writing surfaces. And in China, they used bamboo and sometimes even bones. I'm not sure if they were human bones or animal bones. Use your imagination. The development of paper using a pulp-like mixture led to incredible advancements in quickening the spread of human knowledge— It also helped with another very useful invention, one that we all use every single day, hopefully. (laughs) And that is toilet paper. Remember that stuff that during COVID everyone like risked their life for? I mean, literally, I saw people pushing grandmas over for like an extra huge bag of toilet paper. Such interesting times indeed. But anyway, back then in the 14th century, toilet paper might be worth pushing a few people over for because not only was it perfumed, but it was also only produced for the Chinese emperor family. And other people were stuck to using things like leaves, corn cobs, shells, sponges, coconut husks, sand, snow, you name it, they used it. I'd say today that I am extremely grateful that all of us, even us mere peasants, have the luxury of toilet paper. Today, we use paper for books, posters, food packaging, moving boxes, and yes, even your school homework, and we can owe it all to the humble wasp. So thank you, little wasp. Here's a quick little tangent that involves paper wasps eating paper to create rainbow wasp nests. So a biology student named Mattia 
Pinchetti was able to get wasps to create a rainbow nest. He gave them colored construction paper one at a time to European paper wasps, and they chewed this paper and created beautiful works of art. You have to look at pictures of this. It literally looks like the equivalent of wasp nest cotton candy. I know that's a weird description. I'm going to put a picture of it up on my stories. So if you want to check it out, check out my Instagram at it's Long. Man, who knew that insects could be such wonderful artists? Of course, wasps aren't the only bug with impressive nests, even if they're rainbow, okay? Although that is very impressive. I'd like to introduce you to this next insect nest, and it starts with a story. So I was recently walking through a garden of an Airbnb I was staying at in Lake Como, Italy, and being someone with a somewhat obsessive entomology passion, I've made a habit of scanning through plants in search of little critters. And if you're a bug fan, okay, you're one of those people that scans plants as well, trying to find creepy crawlies. And while I was looking through the tall grass lining the walking trail that cut through the property, I spotted something interesting, something very weird. Little clumps of bubbles wrapped around the long grass stalks covering the hill. It was Odd, to say the least. It almost looks like the aftermath of a spitting competition in the grass. I know, it's gross. This episode does have a spit theme, it seems. But there were just too many to ignore. Literally everywhere I looked, there were these clumps of bubbles. And upon closer inspection, I noticed little bugs darting through the foam. And this discovery was actually part of what inspired this nesting episode, just because it was just so gosh darn fascinating. And you know me, I had to find out what these little green critters were up to. And after a bit of web searching and perusing, I did find the owners of these bubble homes. They turned out to be the nymphs of an insect called a frog hopper. Now, if you look at the adult frog hoppers, you can see how they get their name. Their head profile does literally very much look like the head of a frog, which tapers down to a pair of folded curved wings. And even the markings on these insects looks like frog skin. But surprisingly, they aren't called frog hoppers because of their appearance. They get their names because they're capable of jumping many times their height and length. But enough about the adults because, yes, they are very fascinating as adults, but I really want to talk about the little frog hopper babies, aka spittlebugs. Accurately named because, like I said earlier, their homes do resemble spittle. There are a few theories as to why these nymphs encase themselves in their foam nests. One was that it served as some sort of protection, like a bubble invisibility cloak. Nothing to see here, just a pile of bubbles. <laughs> Another theory was that the bubbles helped them breathe like those diving beetles that use bubbles of air to refill their lungs with oxygen. And also, that's another fascinating subject I can write a whole podcast episode on. Maybe I will in the future. Anyway, to construct these nests, a little spittlebug sucks up watery sap from plants. After drinking copious amounts of this sap, understandably, they gotta use the potty. And as they relieve themselves, the urine they secrete forms bubbles. So yes, in actuality, these little spittlebugs are hanging out in a nest of their own pee. Ugh. 
Now, one thing about this sap is it's not very nutrient-dense. The little bug must drink a lot to get the nutrition it needs to thrive. And that means a lot of urine bubbles. Around 150 to 280 times its body mass is expelled in this golden bubble bath every day. If you want to compare that to an average-sized human, the equivalent would be 2,700 gallons of pee. That's enough to fill an average pool in a week, if hydrated properly, of course. This bubble nest offers some protection to the young spittlebug from birds, spiders, and wasps. And given that these bubbles consist of the nymph's waste, they are understandably not the preferred way of breathing, such as the second theory suggests. In fact, the spittlebug will often stick its abdomen out of the foam like a little snorkel to get its oxygen. However, when threatened for a long enough period of time, the spittlebug will resort to the bubbles as an emergency oxygen supply. It will pop a bunch of smaller bubbles in order to make a larger bubble to breathe from. So yeah, it might be breathing in a little bit of ammonia. When it comes time for this little nymph to grow up, it will encase itself in a large bubble, kind of like a cocoon, and go through a metamorphosis into its adult form, where it hops away and has no need for further bubble shenanigans. You would think bubbles make an odd nest, but there's yet another creature in the animal kingdom that uses bubbles as a nesting material. Beta fish. I remember beta fish as those elaborately colored little lonely fish perched on the shelf at my local pet store, and they were often separated in clear plastic cups placed side by side. And I always thought, it's such a small little space for a beta fish. Were they, like, lonesome by themselves there? Like, why were they kept separate? I mean, there's obviously not a lot of stimulation happening in a plastic cup. But since my childhood, I've learned that the reason specifically male beta fish are kept this way is because they're extremely territorial and will fight to the death when combined in the same tank. So it's just, you know, they don't want violence at the pet store. That's why. Can you imagine being a little kid at a pet store and they have all these beta fish in the same tank and they're just going at it? Last one standing is like the alpha of the entire beta fish pack. That'd be horrid. I feel like that would uh, scar a lot of children's lives. So I'm glad they keep them separate, despite them being in tiny plastic cups. I feel like maybe there could be a better alternative to that. But anyway, that's where they got their nickname, fighting fish, if you're curious. It's interesting because the males of this species are more colorful and elaborate looking compared to the female counterparts. And it makes sense a lot of the time in the animal kingdom, we do see the males being the ones that have all the fancy plumage or all the beautiful colors. And in my honest opinion, male beta fish are pretty dang purdy compared to a lot of other fish that I see out there. They're gorgeous looking. They have like these flowing locks of fins. But aside from being devilishly handsome and purdy looking, they are known as labyrinth fish. So no, they aren't navigating through mazes and answering riddles. The labyrinth is actually a specialized breathing structure that allows betas and other labyrinth fish to gulp air from the surface of their watery homes. But this also brought me to the question, why do they need to have this labyrinth structure to gulp air when they also have gills? Because yes, beta fish do have gills, but they need this air-breathing organ because they're often found in still water in hot tropical areas where the waters are heavily lacking in the life-supporting gas we call oxygen. 
So this labyrinth organ helps our little beta to breathe, but it also has another purpose, building bubble nests. A male beta fish will begin constructing his bubble nest when he's all hot and ready to breed. And yes, it is the males who construct these beta bubble baths, but females have been known to dabble in constructing their own as well, though it's actually pretty rare. If a female does so happen to make a nest, her eggs will be missing a key ingredient, so they're not going to be fertilized, so nothing much comes of her foamy nursery, which is sadness. When a male decides it's time to make a bubble nest, first things first, he'll pick a prime location and then get to bubbling because he wants to attract a pretty, pretty lady beta, though they are arguably not as colorful and pretty as males. But look, the male has to be pretty because he has to put on quite the show to attract a lovely lady because she deserves some wooing. And part of that is making a beautiful bubble nest for her future baby fishies. The bubbles that make up a beta fish's nest are made by gulping air and blowing bubbles coated in the male beta fish's saliva. Who knew so many nests depended on saliva? Definitely not me before researching this. A female beta will then inspect the foamy cluster, and if she approves, the male beta will give her the equivalent of a fin-crushing bear hug, where the male literally squeezes the eggs out of the female. He then gathers them in his mouth and spits them into the bubble nest. Very interesting courtship indeed. The oxygen-rich bubbles paired with the fish repeatedly fanning over the eggs because they'll move their fins to like get that fresh water in the eggs ensures they receive ample amounts of airflow and oxygen. And a daddy beta is a very good housekeeper because he'll also eat any unfertilized eggs. Because unfertilized eggs, as I'm sure you know, are not living. So they will end up decomposing and they risk growing mold, which is very bad for their living brothers and sisters. So yeah, the daddy makes sure he gets some extra protein, no egg goes to waste, and then the other eggs can thrive and grow up to hatch. When the baby betas do hatch, their labyrinth organ isn't fully developed just yet. So because they have those bubble nests floating near the water's surface, this solves that issue by ensuring the babies are close to a constant oxygen supply because they live in some stagnant waters. They need all the H2O, O being oxygen, that they can get. But bettas aren't the only fish with this impressive male-made nest ability. Another fish is super amazing at creating nests, the white-spotted pufferfish. They've been observed making literal works of art out of sand to woo a female every mating season, and the nests are pretty dang magnificent, if I do say so myself. They're created in these geometric circular designs that consist of an outer ring made with mountains of sand with grooves between them, and then the center is formed with finer particles of sand, and this center design kind of resembles like an irregular maze-type pattern. Impressively, these nests are created solely by the male pufferfish's fins. So watching a video of these little guys going to work creating their artwork shows a male dragging his bottom fin along the sand, kind of like a boat rudder cutting through the ocean, and then fluttering his side fins through the sand to dig out valleys. An array of shells are also scavenged and then added to decorate the perimeter. 
And these works of art are in no way rushed because it's estimated that their nests take about seven to 10 days to complete. Like that's a week or over a week to create these things. And it really doesn't surprise me because they're pretty dang big designs for a little fish. I honestly find it mind boggling that a puffer fish of all creatures has the ability to create something so, dare I say, artistically perfect. If you look at an aerial view of this little fishy's artwork, it shows a beautifully intricate design that, honestly, I would have assumed an alien was capable of creating. It literally looks like the ocean equivalent of a crop circle. It's so clear that some calculating and math was involved in constructing this almost kaleidoscope little piece. It's hard work, I'm sure. But the male pufferfish doesn't create these masterpieces for no dang reason. These nests are meant to grab a female pufferfish's attention, and that they do. When the Sandy Circle artworks are complete, females will take notice and swim by to inspect. If the male pufferfish's artwork speaks to them, so to say, the female will decide to reproduce with him. Not much is known as to what exactly a female is looking for, in these nests, but some speculate it's the fine sediment in the center that gets her ovaries tingling. It's also in this sediment-filled maze-like center of the nest that the female will lay her eggs. After she deposits the baby seeds, the female will take off, leaving the male to fertilize them. Ta-da! Success! But hold on. The male job isn't done just yet. He'll also stick around and guard the eggs until they hatch, and then hasta la vista, baby, he abandons the nest as it dissolves away with the ocean's currents. Now, this artistic nest-building ability the pufferfish has in itself is surprising enough. Not only is this nest pretty, because it is pretty, it is also an impressive feat of engineering. The way the nest is shaped helps to filter water in and out of the design, and also deposits that fine sediment in the center. Remember, that's the stuff scientists think the ladies go gaga over. And it's also this system that helps protect the laid eggs. In fact, the water current in the center of the circle is remarkably slowed down by 20% because of the way it's designed. So it's not pretty just to be pretty. Scientists also believe the reason behind their largeness and the intricate patterns of these nests is to help female pufferfish find males in the first place. With low visibility and a lot of space in a big, wide, open ocean, how else would a little fish grab a lady's attention? When it comes to constructing a nest, the animal kingdom has always gathered its materials from what's available. That includes grass, twigs, leaves, and feathers. But... Nests aren't always constructed with items found in the natural world, and these not-so-natural man-made items can do a lot of harm to parents and their babies, who rely on these nests being a safe place for their wee ones to grow up. And surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, researchers have seen a shocking amount of man-made materials being implemented as building supplies, which seems not so safe to me. In fact, nearly 2,771 papers in peer-reviewed scientific literature found evidence of these materials in almost 35,000 nests in 176 bird species. Examples of this can be found in all urban environments, from seabirds in Australia using fishermen's nets, blackbirds in Europe lining their nests with literal plastic bags, 
birds in South America using cigarette butts. That can't be good for the kids. And the list goes on and on. And this one was interesting. As I was looking up images of man-made things found in birds' nests, I saw a picture of a Barbie doll dangling from a weaver's nest, and her hair was woven amongst the grass and twigs. And so remember, weaver birds try to make their nests desirable for other females. And I wonder if the little weaver bird was like, hey, look it, I got like a, a cool little bodyguard or a cool little lady hanging outside of my nest. Don't you want to come here and make some babies? Another great example, or probably a sad example, of birds implementing very unnatural human things into their nests is the bower bird, who, along with making a very intricately constructed twig tunnel, have shifted from berries, flowers, and rocks to bottle caps, candy wrappers, and glass, and other bits of colorful plastic. Surprisingly, despite the bowerbird's colorful collection, they're unable to see color, so they can't see all the different colors of the things they're collecting. They instead gather objects based by the contrast to hopefully attract the opposite sex. And it really is interesting looking. It kind of looks like a twig portal. Like you expect a little bird to go through and somehow travel through time. I don't know why it makes me think of that. It's cool. You have to check it out. But along with this, there is an array of eye-catching items scattered along the floor right next to this arch. And these are used, of course, to attract a lady bowerbird's attention. But in recent years, these nest ornaments that the male bowerbird collects have shifted from flowers, berries, and rocks to bottle caps, candy wrappers, and glass, and also other bits of colorful plastic. Surprisingly, despite the bowerbird's colorful collection, they're unable to see any actual color, so they instead gather objects based by contrast to hopefully attract the opposite sex. And I mean, it does do the trick. The interesting thing about bowerbirds is that they learn from each other. So a younger bowerbird that is developing the ability to create a very pretty nest will look at other older bowerbirds and see how they make their nests. So they pass down some not-so-good habits because I could imagine that putting glass on the floor of a nest where you're expecting to have eggs is not the best idea, but it's something that's passed down through like little birdie generation to birdie generation. Really interesting stuff. Hopefully it's a trend that doesn't keep on happening or possibly hopefully can go in the opposite direction and they can use more natural safe things. This is why it's so important to aim for the trash cans. One thing that I've learned and really appreciated about living in Germany is that they're really dang good at cleaning up the streets and picking up after themselves. It's pretty spick and span here in Stuttgart. So I can imagine if there's a bowerbird nearby, they won't depend on little plastic bottle caps. So do your part, peeps. Hide the glass and all that other plastic stuff from the bowerbirds. All of this to say that animals, like birds living in urban spaces, continuously adapt to their environments. In this way, they serve as bioindicators and they're a direct reflection of our ever-abundant pollution problem. I do suppose one man's trash is another bird's treasure, but methinks this is not so favorable a trend in the nesting world. 
That brings me to the end of our episode for this week. After researching this episode, I feel like I've gained a whole new appreciation for the nest I found on my hike. And what may appear as a mere clump of twigs and hair and leaves, it actually serves as a safe place and a home for a parent bird and their offspring to hopefully grow up and then make a nest of their own where future generations can thrive. And all of the nests we touched on today are no doubt incredibly impressive engineering feats of nature. They can range from giant heavy hay barrel apartments to tiny clusters of bubbles. Each design is thoughtfully constructed, both for durability and safety against predators and as a soft, delicate resting place for a freshly hatched batch of wee ones. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please send it to a friend, a family member, or maybe that person you're trying to impress. Anyway, really, I can't say it enough. All you can do to get this podcast out there is so greatly appreciated. Also, if you could hop on over and hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss a single one, us here at Little Curiosities that work very hard to make this podcast happen would very much appreciate it. Also, don't forget to rate and review. I love creating this podcast and all of you are the reason why I do it. So thank you. Until next time, ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Are you ready for the ultimate Love Island experience? Join us on After the Island. We're going back to where it all began. Fiji. Love Island USA Season 5 is making a splash on Peacock right now. And guess what? Your favorite recap show is back too. Welcome to After the Island. Join us as real-life besties and co-hosts, Elizabeth and Alex, as we deep dive into each sizzling episode of Love Island USA. We'll spill the tea, interview contestants, answer fan questions, and give you unprecedented behind-the-scenes access to the wildly popular world of Love Island. Don't miss a single moment of the drama, romance, and unforgettable island vibes. Listen to After the Island on any streaming platform. Whether you're in a relationship, single, or recently heartbroken, you could be navigating some tough stuff. And it really can be challenging to do this on your own. We all need help when it comes to our relationships, very specifically, our love lives. I'm Jillian, and each week on my podcast, Jillian on Love, I share skills on how to strengthen our relationships, how to build a stronger sense of self, and how to heal heartbreak and choose better partners. Learn how to start making change today and search for Jillian on Love wherever you're listening now.